Good to see you all in here. Y'all have made it to Friday afternoon at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. You are the elect, the chosen of God to endure through much suffering. So uh, thanks for coming out. My name is uh, Mitch East. I'm the preaching minister at University Avenue Church of Christ. Um, I grew up in Round Rock, uh, which is a suburb of Austin. And I recently started my first full-time preaching position, uh, which is great. I spent the last year uh, in Oxford, England. I was working for an Anglican church there for a year as an intern. And it was these three things all at the same time, if you can believe it. Uh, it was Anglican, Evangelical, and Charismatic, okay. which is an interesting soup to put all those ingredients in, uh, but it actually tasted pretty good. It was a really good experience. Uh, my, my now wife and I uh, were both there. She was uh, getting her uh, master's degree in publishing, and I was working for the church. And we had to say this a lot, but we lived in two separate places, okay? Just wanted to make sure. We, we told people we moved to Oxford, and they took that the wrong way that we moved to the same place when we were not married. So anyways, I'd like to give that, I'd like to make that clear beforehand. Uh, we had a great time there and uh, we've had a, kind of an incredible journey back to the States, back to my hometown and now preaching at uh, University Avenue. So for the next hour, what I'd like to do is really unpack this title. Uh, other speakers have mentioned this, but sometimes you give a title six months uh, in advance and you regret it because you know that there's so many different ways these titles can be taken so I'd like to unpack this this title is inspired by the story uh, in the Gospels in which a father asks Jesus to heal his son and Jesus asks the father how long has this been happening and the father says from childhood then the father says if you are able to do anything have pity on us and help us. And Jesus says in a very sassy tone, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And then the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, I began studying this topic by thinking about doubt in the Psalms, but as I began to research more uh, responses to doubt, my focus in this class changed. Um, I thought for a long time that doubt is happening among millennials. I'm a millennial myself and I've experienced doubt, but most importantly, I think in my research and in reading and preparing for this topic, I think that doubt is being glamorized in some unhealthy ways. And I'm hoping to offer a way forward to help those who struggle with doubt. And I'll explain really what I mean by glamorize, because I think that's really important. But I want to acknowledge the fact that some people in this room are millennials, some people are not. Uh, you might be younger or older than that generation. Some of you may have experienced doubt or be experiencing uh, doubt even right now. And some of you may be unfamiliar with doubt and wonder uh, why uh, younger generations are struggling with this so much. Um, some of you are leaders in your church and you're wondering what the best response is because this seems like a new phenomenon that you're working with. Uh, some of you uh, came here maybe with your arms crossed a little bit and wondering why this guy is calling doubt glamorous 
because it doesn't seem glamorous. Um, but I'm really hoping that throughout this, this presentation we can unravel uh, what, what this title really means. Um, does unbelief need help? How are, being, how are people being helped with their doubt, and is it glamorized? Uh, so I want to start with a, a passage from Jude uh, that I think is, is really important. Jude says, build yourselves up on your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who are wavering. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Other translations say, have mercy on those who doubt. So at the very least, at the very least, doubt requires mercy. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about the research done on millennials who are struggling uh, with doubt. And, and this is basically what I want to say. Doubt among millennials is very real, and our response matters. Okay. So first, I just want to get the, the stats out there so that we're aware of the reality. Okay. So questioning what you believe about religion or God is commonplace commonplace for most American adults who self-identify as Christian or have identified as Christians in the past. That is 65% of people who say, I am a Christian or I used to be a Christian, have struggled or questioned what they believe about religion or God. Just to continue, over one quarter of these people say that they still experience spiritual doubt. So it's an ongoing phenomenon, while four in ten say that they've experienced it in the past, but have worked through it. I think we're going to come back to that phrase, working through doubt. And finally, only about one-third, 35% of Americans who say that I am a Christian have never experienced it at all. Okay, I think that that is really important to start out acknowledging those things. Okay, this is another... The, the Barna research that I looked up in, in studying for this didn't define practicing Christians, and I'm sure we all struggle with defining what practicing Christians really means. Uh, but they said a significant portion of practicing Christians, 19% experienced doubt. But, and they said due to their commitment to the church and being around other Christians, they're one of the most likely groups to have worked through doubt. Okay, but this is still important. The the church-going Christian, the Christian who goes to small group, the Christian who serves in your homeless ministry, even 19% of those practicing Christians experience doubt. Okay, now it breaks down. This is all research done by Barna, by the way, and you can look this up online. Then it breaks down by ages. And it says, having come of age in a more secular and pluralistic culture, 38% of millennials currently experience doubt. And that is almost double what other generations experience in terms of doubt. So uh, Gen X, the, the generation older than millennials, 23%, boomers 19, and elders uh, 20%. So double. It's an increasing phenomenon. It's a growing phenomenon for younger Christians and younger Americans, okay? Uh, let's keep moving through these. I don't know why this is the case, and I don't have a theory that I'm going to offer for this, but one of the aspects of this research is that men are more likely than women to actively experience doubt. 
Those who have been through college and encountered an array of ideas, philosophy, and worldviews are twice as likely to experience doubt as those who have a high school education or less. And then the research moves to what's the result of doubt? How does doubt actually impact those who are doubting? Is there any kind of response? Leaving church was the most common activity to, uh, to stop among practicing Christians. I think that should say attending church uh, was, the, was the most common activity to stop. That's just kind of a grammatical thing, and that's my mistake, millennial. Uh, okay, and then three, in and three out of ten adults stopped reading the Bible and praying while another quarter quit talking with friends or family about spirit spirituality, God, or religion. So this doubt wasn't just internalized. It wasn't just something that they felt on the inside but lived with. There was actually a response to this, and that meant leaving church, quitting some of the distinct practices of being a Christian, like reading the Bible or praying, and then just to stop talking about it at all. Then, millennials were the most likely to stop doing all of the above and at higher rates. This, this was the most, I think, one of the most interesting stats, and I don't know exactly what this, this means or what this looks like, but... Of those who faced spiritual doubt, almost 40% didn't change anything in response to their doubt. They kept going to church. They kept reading their Bibles. They kept praying. Which means that there might be a lot of people you think are doing fine, and yet on the inside are doubting. And so in light of all of this, in light of all the stats, I think that the verse from Jude is all the more important, right? To have mercy on those who doubt. But I just want to clarify at the beginning, what I don't mean by have mercy is necessarily to change your beliefs. So sometimes what churches might do in response to those who are experiencing uh, any form of doubt might say, we, well, we need to change. We need to change what we believe in order uh, to help doubters. They, they doubt a lot of the things we believe, so we might need to change. That is not what I'm going to suggest. Uh, throughout this presentation, but what I also don't want to do is scandalize doubt. And I think this can happen in a lot of church contexts. What we can do is end up gasping when people struggle. <gasps> you doubt? <laughs> that's, what, that's what a lot of doubters in the pews are experiencing, that it's a scandal. It's something worth gasping at. It's something that they should avoid at all costs. But that's not what I'm suggesting. Uh, there's this incredible story. I'm reading a memoir by, an, by an, a previously an atheist man named David Bennett. And he grew up in Australia. He went to an Anglican boys' school. And uh, he, in the middle of a class with the minister teaching all of the boys, he erupted, he interrupted, and he asked all of these questions. And the, the minister gave him a journal and said, I want you to fill this book with all of your questions. And he said, you know, challenge accepted. I'm, I'm going to fill this thing with questions I have. And the minister came back, once he got the journal from, from David, uh, he, he walked through each question with him. And he said, I'm going to try and give you the, the best answer I know. And in that story, David Bennett says, this is someone who used to be an atheist and is now a Christian. He said, it was the first time a Christian ever loved me. The first time a Christian ever loved me. 
was when they gave me a journal and just let me ask a lot of questions. Okay, so what that minister did not do is scandalize Dow and say, hush, 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 we don't need any of your questions. But he also didn't change any of his beliefs. He answered to the best of his ability. Um, and, because, and this is why I'm so concerned about scandalizing doubt. If we do that, I think that doubting Christians and doubting Americans will seek answers elsewhere. And this is, uh, this is really important to me because when I started doing this research, there was uh, a lot of books on doubt. And I want to talk about five in particular. Um, these are released all within the past uh, nine years, ten years, uh, and, and they're from, I think, all evangelicals, or ex-evangelicals, um, and, and they all have or are written in the context of some kind of doubt. They're either written by doubters, people who struggle through doubt and kind of narrate their story of doubt, or are a response to doubters. They're a kind of memoir or a kind of uh, antidote to doubt. So this is uh, Jonathan Merritt, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Mike McHarg, Fighting God in the Waves, uh, Faith Unraveled by Rachel Held Evans, The Sin of Certainty by Pete Enns, and Benefit of the Doubt by Greg Boyd. These are all books written in the context of doubt and often for millennials who are struggling with doubt. And before I go forward with any kind of criticism of these books, I want to say a few things that I think are really good about them. So first, they all take doubt seriously. None of them scandalized doubt. Based on their popularity, I think that they are striking a chord with people who struggle with doubt. And, and they have this very intense commitment to intellectual honesty. And I think all of them display this throughout their books. And they all care about being intellectually honest. They want to be consistent and they want to be thoughtful. Now, like I said earlier, they, they are... I think they're all ex-evangelicals, or, or at least grew up in evangelical church, and in evangelical churches. And, and my point in criticizing this is to not criticize people who leave the evangelical church. The, the point of this talk is, is not, don't become Episcopal, okay? Like that's, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, some of these people do that. That is not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned most about our response to doubt. And I think that these authors are already doing it, okay? Um, now, here's the thing. All five of those books have four ideas that they, that I think all of them, and, and I could have listed a bunch of quotes from them. I just thought I'd summarize this all together. All four of them have this response to those who are doubting, okay? The first is doubt is inevitable and incurable. It's kind of like, doubt is kind of like puberty, it's going to happen one day, you can't avoid it, and you can't undo it, okay? It's going to happen. It's, it's difficult, but you can't, you, you can't get around it. It's not something you can, can skirt around. It's going to happen to you. And doubt is also like puberty because it's universal. Everybody goes through this. Everybody doubts. That's a kind of constant theme throughout these books. And third, what they say is, on the whole... Doubt is good for the doubters. They'll even say things like, uh, a strong faith requires doubt. Okay? Now, 
one of the big difficulties as I was reading through these books and, and dealing with their ideas is that doubt was not exactly clearly defined, okay? It depended in, in all these different situations on, on what they actually meant. So sometimes they talked about doubt as just confusion, right? Average person in the pew does not understand or, or is confused by the Trinity, and they may ask questions about the Trinity. Anybody ever had questions about the Trinity? Okay, and then they would talk about that confusion as doubt, okay? Sometimes they talked about suffering as if that was doubt, okay? So, um, and, and all five of the authors tell some really horrible stories about when they were going through doubts, how people betrayed them, about how people kind of kicked them to the curb. And, and when they were suffering, they often referred to that kind of generically as doubting. It was a season of doubt or a time of doubt. The third was doubt as distrust. And this is something that, and I agree with all of the authors on, on this front especially, they would talk about not being able to trust God. That they weren't sure if God could really follow through on his promises. And they all, all five of them say, distrusting God, bad idea. And I totally agree with them. But this, this fourth thing is what I'm, I'm most concerned about. Sometimes they talked about doubt as disbelief. Simply rejecting that God exists, that God is out there, that God is, is good, that God um, is, is working in our lives. And here's what I want to say moving forward. This is what I'm concerned about. These other three things, I think, are, uh, are experiences that all of us go through. We, we distrust God. We suffer in this life. We're confused uh, about what we're supposed to believe. But this is what I'm most concerned about. Is everybody following me? Whenever I criticize uh, some of the ideas or responses to doubt in these books, I am not talking about A, B, or C. I'm talking about doubt as disbelief, rejecting that God exists. So when you, um, when you, when you plug disbelief back into those four ultimate truths, this is what you get. Disbelief, rejecting that God exists, that God exists is inevitable and incurable. Disbelief is universal across time and across the world. Disbelief is always good. And disbelief is difficult. Okay, here's the thing. This is when I start pushing back. Because if they mean this, and if Rachel Held Evans or Mike McCart or any of them were in this room and they say, I don't mean that, that's fine. But if they mean this, this is what I'm concerned about. I definitely agree with four. I don't agree with one through three. I agree that disbelief is difficult. But what I want to spend the rest of this talk on is why I do not think one, two, and three are right. Is everybody following me? Nod your head? Okay. This is, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about confusion or suffering or any of that. I'm talking about disbelief, okay? And that's what I want to talk about uh, for the rest of the time. So first of all, um, disbelief is not inevitable and it's not incurable, okay? So first of all, in the research that we were looking at in the beginning, here's a few of the things that that research said. 
35%, over a third of Americans who identify as Christians, say they've never doubted. Right? Already in the research, you have a third of Christians, American Christians, who say, I've never experienced doubt. 40% say they have experienced it in the past, but have worked through it. Meaning, it's not incurable. Mm -hmm. Right? There's been, a, there's been a change of sorts. Now, here's, here's the reason why I'm most concerned about the incurable. And sometimes that, that kind of gives the language of like disease or sickness, and that's not what I'm trying to imply. But they sometimes say it's, it's unchangeable. Once you get disbelief in your bones, you'll have it for the rest of your life. Okay? So, for example, um, Jonathan Merritt is one of the authors, uh, that, and, and he wrote Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And his whole book is about taking uh, traditional terms that, that Christians use a lot, like grace and healing and blessed and sin, and, and kind of reconfiguring them or rethinking them for, for a language or an audience that would be more palatable. Like, we can't use those words anymore because they just don't work. Okay? That's kind of the thesis of the book. And Jonathan Merritt grew up in an evangelical church and has since left and now has a lot of convictions about kind of the best way to talk about those scriptural terms. What's interesting about that is he is now a very convicted person just about other beliefs. You following me? I'm seeing less nods, so I'm going I'm to explain my point a little bit more. If you say something like disbelief in God is incurable, immutable, unchangeable, but what happened in his life is he changed some of his beliefs and now has very strong convictions about those beliefs. So the point is, they can change. Mm -hmm. yeah. They can. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not going to make one single comment about his new beliefs, but the idea, the, the truth there is that his beliefs have changed. Like a lot of our beliefs change. So saying that, that disbelief in God is immutable, like once you have it, you cannot be cured of it, just doesn't work. What he ends up committing himself to is that it's a kind of, uh, uh, yeah, a kind of disease. There, and there's no cure out there. Um, th this, kind of, this happens with uh, some of the other authors. Um, so Rachel Held Evans or Mike McHarg will kind of tell stories about um, changing their minds about evolution, okay? And this class is not about evolution, but they, they change their minds. They used to kind of have a more traditional, there, there's six days of creation, God instantly made us, there is no, no evolution, and then they came to that conclusion later on in life. Um, in other words, they learned things. They, they, they read books, they went off to college, they, and they, they disagreed with what they used to believe, and now they believe something else. Disbelief in God, which they all struggled with at different times in their life, changed. <clears throat> you, you, you can't uh, say uh, that the disbeliefs that I have are unchangeable or incurable when plenty of your beliefs have changed. Is everybody following me? I'm seeing some, some glaze, okay? I just want to make sure I'm communicating well. 
Um, here's, here's just kind of a, a personal story to, to relate to this. When I was in undergraduate, uh, in my undergraduate programs and graduate programs at ACU, uh, I struggled a lot with, with disbelief. And uh, near the end of my undergraduate program, man, I think I had three beliefs. <laughs> maybe, maybe four religious beliefs. And once I got into graduate school, I had a professor uh, that I kind of shared some of these things with him, and he was very understanding. Uh, and I just, I just said, well, you, uh, you just can't be convicted in all those things. You can't have all those convictions about all your beliefs. This is uh, Dr. Fred Aquino, for those of you who know him. Uh, and he's Italian, so he responded very intensely. Uh, and he said, he said, of course I can. You're, you're convicted about a lack of conviction, Mitch. And it was the first time these things clicked. He said, you're allowed to be convicted, and so am I. So, and, and, and he wasn't trying to discourage me. He wasn't trying to say that my, my reasons for struggling with belief uh, were, were bad. He wasn't trying to scandalize them. He was trying to say they can change. You can learn things. You can even return to beliefs you had as a kid. This is actually possible. And you can be convicted. You don't have to apologize for that. Uh, the, the second uh, point I want to make is that disbelief is not universal. And this kind of, uh, this, this really changed for me, or this kind of understanding of uh, disbelief changed for me when I read three books, okay? But, but one I want to focus on, it's called Seven Types of Atheism by John Gray. And John Gray is an atheist, and he kind of works through works through different kinds of atheism. But his references for atheism go far as back as 1700. Not any further back than that. Which means that across time, atheism doesn't go all the way back. Atheism is an actually Western phenomenon in the past 300 years. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's new. And I, I kind of got to this point where I was struggling with, with disbelief, and I thought, everyone across the planet, and from time immemorial, must have also struggled with disbelief. And it's just not true. <coughs> they might have believed different things. They might have believed in different gods. But atheism is new on the scene. Uh, this is the way that one, one author uh, named Joseph Minich talks about it. Uh, his book is called Enduring Divine Absence, and he says it this way, and I think this is a good, good summary. He says, neither the psalmist, the ancient Near Eastern pagan, medieval Catholic, nor the ancient starving Chinese peasant thought that their unanswered cries to the silent sky had any relevance to the question of whether God exists or not. That God existed was an obvious truth. If you went back, it would be strange to ask them, do you believe in God? They wouldn't have found that idea plausible. The operating questions were, which gods do you worship? What was that author? Uh, his name is Joseph Minich, M-I-N-I-C-H. Okay, so what he's saying is <laughs> there has always been suffering, there has always been people who have cried out to God in prayer, and there have always been people who felt like their prayers were not answered. But let's not project our current struggle with disbelief back in time. 
Now, this is that, <laughs> that idea is so not super comforting to someone who's doubting. So you're saying that yeah. that they always believe in a god. A god or uh, gods or uh, for for the Jews, for example, or Muslims, one one true God and the right. yeah yeah, okay. yeah. So atheism, that kind of disbelief in 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 the existence of God, the supernatural, that's new on the scene. Um, now again, I just want to say right now that this would not necessarily be comforting to a doubter. Like I would not necessarily say, but. Ancient Chinese peasants didn't disbelieve like you do. That's not a very comforting idea, okay? But I think what's actually really important and why this is this was actually really helpful to me is um, eventually my, my mentor, uh, Fred, what he was saying was, this is the cultural air you're breathing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay? This is... This is not something from time immemorial. This is not something that everybody on the planet struggles with. It actually might be due to the culture in which we live, the one in which you live. And that meant that I, I wasn't crazy. I just happened to be born in a specific time in a specific place where disbelief is common in this time, in this place. And, and so what that means is, when, when I'm a preaching minister in Austin, Texas, and so when a college kid at, at the University of Texas says, I struggle to disbelieve, I say, okay, you're not crazy. This is the cultural air we breathe. This is the cultural water we swim in. This is something that's a part of, of who we are. But I'm not going to say, yes, everybody in all time and all places have struggled with this, they haven't. This is something we're dealing with. And what, what might be better is to say, what conditions in our culture have made belief so difficult? And that might actually have, help us have a better response to doubters. Okay, is that everybody following me so far? Disbelief is not uh, incurable or inevitable. Disbelief is not uh, universal. And finally, this is what I think is really important. Disbelief is not always good. And I think that you, I, I, I'll just speak for myself. I saw this in my life. When I started to struggle with disbelief and not really being confident in my ability to believe, guess where I stopped going? Church. Church. I stopped praying. I stopped reading the Bible. I stopped meeting with fellow Christians. When I would sit in church, no minister knows what this experience is like, but when I sat in church, I felt very cynical. And nothing that happened at church would ever satisfy me. And it was always lower than my bar of expectations. And I would complain. I, I remember this story where I sat in a Bible class uh, and I, and uh, the, the teacher of the class said, Jesus is 50% God and 50% human. And as a, you know, as a Bible major, I knew, no. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that answer wasn't right. And so I went up to one of the other ministers at the church, and I said, everyone agrees with me. That class wasn't good. <laughs> Everyone agrees with me. I just became, at that point, I became very cynical. And I thought, 
I'm dissatisfied, everyone around me is dissatisfied. And while I was struggling with this belief, what this led to was vice, not virtue. This led to my character being um, <laughs> less than admirable. Doubt is not always a good thing. In fact, but belief actually can lead people to virtue, right on the other end. So uh, uh, I don't know if this name rings a bell, but uh, Rod Dreher is a, is a commentator, and he uh, on politics and church and a lot of other things. And uh, don't go read his blog because he can be kind of intense. Uh, but he grew up he grew up Methodist, and his dad never went to church. And one Sunday, uh, uh, Rod said he wasn't going to church, and his dad kind of lost it. Uh, and Rod said back to him, "You don't go to church. Why should I?" Uh, and that comment shut his dad up very quickly. Uh, and Dreher never went again, and his life just kind of spiraled out of control. And eventually, uh, he turned against his old ways and is now a, a Christian. But disbelief led to vice, and belief led to virtue. Disbelief is not always good. It does not always make you a better person. It does not always make you virtuous or have noble character. Now, here's the thing. Here's one quick thing I do want to say. Disbelief can be good. Sometimes someone will go through a season of doubt. They will struggle with believing in God. They'll be cynical at church. But that will be a step to a deeper faith later on. And I don't want to uh, dismiss that because that can happen. But these authors often seem to say that disbelief is a requirement. It like builds up your muscles. It makes you a better person. But I just don't think it's true. And what ends up happening with these authors is that due to those, those truths about doubt, they often give these prescriptions. And, and to be frank, I just don't think they're helpful. So one of the prescriptions is just live in the tension of faith and doubt. Basically, live with it. Suffer with it. It's not going away. Um, what the, the other uh, frequent prescription is to, to translate your faith. And what I mean by this, this is specifically to Jonathan Merritt's uh, work, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Kind of change it to a faith that works for you. Are you hearing me what, what I, when I say that? Change, so if, it's, if the word sin is uncomfortable to you, use another word. If the, if the word grace is uncomfortable to you and you struggle to believe in grace, change it to be a little bit more palatable to you. And the third thing, and this, this I actually see at the, the end of Mike McHard's book, uh, reduce your faith. Basically, take all of the religious beliefs you may have and kind of shrink it down to two or three that you know you can believe in. So you'll say, I know that Jesus is Lord, but I'm really not sure if the Exodus is real or God makes promises or if heaven's going to be great. <laughs> You're just going to reduce it down. And what I, what I think this ends up doing is just reinforcing doubt. All three of these prescriptions, I think that they're intended to help. 
I think it comes from a good place in all five of the authors, but what it ends up doing is just reinforcing the disbelief that people struggle with. So uh, it's really easy to criticize five other books and just walk out and say, tough luck. Uh, but I'm actually going to try and uh, give what I think helped me when I struggled with disbelief, um, and, and hopefully this can be uh, help a help to you. So first, I would say to anyone who's doubting, I'd just like to encourage them and say, you're not crazy, right? This goes back to breathing in the cultural air, uh, uh, swimming in these cultural waters. You're not crazy. You live in, in the West. You lived in an industrialized and educated culture uh, that is going to teach you that religious beliefs uh, can't be trusted. You're not crazy. You've just been taught. You went to school. And, and disbelief was, uh, was encouraged in you. Um, and, and this is really important, I want to say you're not, uh, I would want to tell them that they're not crazy because a lot of people don't intend for disbelief to creep up in their lives. This just is the world that they live with. Uh, second, I, I really like to encourage learning. I, uh, one, one response that we talked about earlier is scandalizing doubt. So don't ask those questions. Uh, don't read those authors. Don't listen to those podcasts. Um, no, I, I don't want to be, as a Christian, I don't want to be scared of other people's answers. Yeah. I don't want to be scared of, of uh, someone who disagrees with me. I'm going to encourage learning, but I'm going to encourage the whole spectrum yes. of what you might be able to learn. I'm going to say listen to those podcasts and listen to this one mm -hmm. and this other one that, uh, that will challenge you and maybe will help you be less confused. Not going to discourage learning. The third thing, if, if someone is coming uh, with, with doubts and it's related to suffering, none of this is going to do anything. I would not make these kind of arguments to someone who's, who's suffering in their lives. I just want to lament with them. I don't, I don't want to uh, tell them, you know, ancient Chinese peasants wouldn't struggle with they struggle with. That's not going to do anything. If they're suffering, I want to encourage lament. But, but fourth and finally, this was really key for, for, uh, for me in my life. I just thought that, like, conviction was wrong. Like, believing something really strongly reminded me of fundamentalists, and no one wants to be a fundamentalist, right? And so, so I can't really be genuinely convicted about something. But then what my mentor uh, pointed out to me is that all of the people I look up to are convicted about something. Martin Luther King Jr. was very con convicted about a lot of things in this country. Mother Teresa was convicted that poverty was an evil worth confronting. A saint named Monica was very convicted that she should pray for her son, and over nine years she prayed for him, he converted, and he became Saint Augustine, one of the most influential theologians who ever lived. She was very convicted that prayer works. Conviction is not wrong. You can, you can be convicted. Um, now, that doesn't justify uh, uh, 
whatever you happen to be convicted in, but conviction itself is not wrong. Um, I wanted to read uh, uh, a quote by Richard Beck. He actually released this yesterday. Um, I didn't tell him to, but he agrees with me, so I want to share it with you all. This is what he says. Can you all read that? I'm going to zoom in, or I'm going to do something else that I don't really want to. Here we go. Okay, let's zoom in. There we go. Okay, he says, I'm often asked about how a person can move from a season of deconstruction regarding the faith, a season of doubt, questioning, and searching, into a season of reconstruction, renewed conviction, faith, and spiritual vitality. He talks about how yet uh, the prior day he wrote a post about someone, and he says, combativeness isn't a good in and of itself. There are lots of combative Christians in the culture wars who I strongly disagree with. You can be combative about the wrong thing. But Howaross, this theologian he posted about yesterday, is someone who I think is combative about the right things and is confident that Jesus and the church are the salvation of the world. So when people are going through a season of deconstruction, they often drift toward Christian voices that help them doubt better. And from a personal experience, let me just say, that's a bad idea. If you ever read voices saying, keep doubting, keep doubting, well, guess what? You'll keep doubting. And eventually those doubts are going to drown you. So my advice, if you're wanting to move out of a season of deconstruction, is to start reading confident and unapologetic Christian voices. Stanley Howross is a good choice. He recommends a few other authors. And then he says, and perhaps best of all, read the Gospels. According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spend some time with Jesus. All that to say, stop reading authors who reinforce your doubts and read someone who puts some steel back in your spine. Um, I say this because I, this is very important to me because I was on that road of disbelief. And someone helped me come back. They put steel back in my spine. They said, you can be convicted. You can learn more things. You can perhaps even return to some religious beliefs you grew up with. They aren't all crazy. And part of the reason why you struggle with belief is not because it's universal and every single person on planet Earth struggles with it. It's because of the culture in which we live. And if that's the cultural water you're swimming in, come up for a breath of air. Okay? Um, I wanted to leave some time uh, at the end to, to answer some questions, but uh, that's what I have to say about helping unbelief. So, is there any? Are there any questions? Yeah. So, um, in a philosophy class that I took a few years ago, the professor said that the generation today is not interested in apologetics. Can you help me understand that? Yeah. Well, I was actually having a conversation uh, with my wife earlier about this. I think that. Some of the reasons why apologetics might be failing is often because of the sense of embattlement. Like, they're, they're very embattled in the sense that um, they often don't admit the weaknesses of their position. This is the, these are the apologetics people that I've seen. Okay. Um, they often fail to admit some of the weaknesses of their points um, and often dismiss as stupid or ridiculous those who don't agree with them. And I think that that rhetoric 
while a lot of their arguments can be strong, their rhetoric and the way they do it really turns off younger generations. Um, so, th th so that would be my, that, th that has been my experience that I think that's a really good argument, but he's a jerk. Yeah. All right, so if the apologist is not a jerk, they would be more open to listen. Yeah, I actually do, th I, I really do think so. Now, it's not gonna be universal. Right. I mean, um, I think, I think apologetics authors can still fail to convince, but not being a jerk is a really good first step. <laughs> um, about 35 years ago, I read a book called The Myth of, um, the Myth of Certainty, and it sounded like a rehash of these more contemporary books that you listed. I mean, I, immersed in academia, I equated in intellectualism with uncertainty. Right. And life pulled me from that, and uh, mere Christianity helped too. Yeah. And so the moral argument for God kind of connects with what you said about virtue and vice, mm -hmm. and how uh, that pursuit of virtue, that's what led me out of some of my doubts. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure about God and some of these other things, but the pursuit of virtue kept me, on, not that I found it, <laughs> but it kept me on the right track, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Any other questions? What yeah. Is the name of this article? Uh, it's by Richard Beck. He's a psychology I professor. Mean, if I wanted to look it up. His, yeah, his blog is called uh, Experimental Theology. Okay. All the way up at the top. <clears throat> yeah, Advice for Reconstruction is what he called it. And then from experimental theology. Yeah. So if you have other friends, being a millennial as well, who have taken that doubt and then decided to leave, mm -hmm. so how would we how would we approach them with knowing this information? What's the first step in approaching someone to to let them know that hey, it it it'll be okay? Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm say say a little problem. bit more. Say a little bit more. So uh, so I've struggled with doubt yeah. and this disbelief thing, and it's been shoved down our throats that it's that it's normal. And so you now that I have information about, well, it's not necessarily been normal this whole time. Uh, and a friend goes, well, I don't know if I agree with that. What is what what's the best step to introduce them to material like this? Th does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so un unfortunately a lot of this is framed intellectually. Right. And sometimes people's real issues with the church or Jesus are not intellectual. Right, right. Um, it's and it's, thing. yeah, there's, there's, and there might be a lot of really bad, uh, back, like backstory right. with the church. And so sometimes you're thinking you're having an intellectual argument and you're wondering like, are they just, what are they, where are they yeah. pulling this from? Yeah. But really it's a kind of frustration with the church. Um, I would say in my experience with, with someone who thinks like basically you just can't have strong religious beliefs, right. um, if, if I knew that there was enough relational trust with them, I would ask them about what they care about. And typically, people my age, we care about a lot of stuff. Right. Social justice, that like care for the planet, and if you have convictions about those things, why can't you have convictions about religious beliefs? Um, because we, we actually really look up to the people who are convicted about something 
and live their life based on it. So why can't you do that for the church? Yes. If their problem is conviction itself, right? Um, that's that's typically how I, I might respond. But again, I'd have to well, know that there's there's exactly. trust. That's a good place to start. It. Yeah, <laughs> get a conversation rolling. Right. Fantastic. Thank you. Is there something? Back? I was yeah. just going to make a comment. Um, as a parent, um, my first reaction to my son's atheism was uh, it made me angry. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to interrupt, sir. No, thank you for seriously. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I I heard someone else say this, so this is I'm not taking credit, but someone else uh, said to me, if you can't uh, love them when they're not a Christian, mm -hmm. why would they become one? Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I need some help in understanding believers in the younger generations, but they don't attend church. They don't feel mm -hmm. church mm -hmm. serves a purpose, I guess, in their life. Mm -hmm. Kind of like maybe the people that live together and said that a marriage license is just a piece of right. paper. I don't know. I don't know where the correlation and where that seems to come from. Or is it because our community or lack of community relationships has broken down? Four years ago, you went to school and church with the same kids and this and that. And uh, consistency. We didn't have sports outside the house. We didn't have all these things with all these different groups. Mm -hmm. So what you learned at school, church, and your family was a relational situation. Mm -hmm. And the church was just part of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to understand how or why the importance of church, the church family, has lost its yeah. importance in their life. Yeah. Do you have about six hours? <laughs> I do. Okay. Me too. I should have said eight or nine. <laughs> I think, like anything, as big of a uh, phenomenon this is in our country of the kind of spiritual but not religious, yeah. gro that growing group, um, I, it, it has a hundred different factors. Um, I think... One of the interesting things about some of the research that's been done on people who are leaving the church is that they continue to have spiritual beliefs and practices. So belief in God, prayer, um, and uh, actually a lot of kind of non-Christian spiritual practices are actually growing. So I, we, I preached a sermon on this uh, just a, a month or two ago 
um, uh, it's it's very popular to be spiritual. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, if, if if you think about the the uh, rising tide of uh, astrology and witchcraft, yeah. mm -hmm. and 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 uh, that's not really to be. Uh, I'm not saying those things to sound scary. Um, some of the most secular cities in the country are the, the place to practice those. If you want to make money in witchcraft, move to D.C., okay? Seriously. I mean, the, the trends are growing there. So th there might be a really interesting opportunity to think through um, why are there a lot of spiritual people uh, who don't want to uh, share that spiritual life with someone else in community with a lot of other people. And I think that's one of the most pressing questions for us as Christians. People are still very spiritual, but they're not committed to a community of spiritual people. Because you can do astrology on your own in your house. What right. I hear a lot is, and it's almost like a, like people, well, the young folk that I'm around, it's almost like they brag. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like an interplay on words. And I've asked that question, well, it's almost like being religious is a bad word. But spiritual is is something to be admired. You know? Yeah. It's like enlightenment almost. Like, yeah. Say it again. It's like you become enlightened. Like, you know, we're not like oh, okay. people. I, th I think some of that, though, I don't want to, what, what time is it? Um, we're all right. <laughs> we're all right. We're all right. Let's keep going. So, one of my tendencies, though I, I don't want this to, to sound too harsh, is that I think what a lot of people associate religion with is rules, yes. right? right? So, uh, religion means I, I should or I ought, or I should not and I ought not. Um, and and in, in especially our tradition, in Churches of Christ at least, uh, we have struggled with legalism uh, to the extent that that has really turned people off. Um, however, we don't want to swing to the other ends where there's a kind of sense of like, well, as long as you do it in good conscience, you're good. Um, I think what we have to, that, and this really isn't a problem to be solved, but a tension to be managed is uh, our failure to live up to the rules that God gives us is is an occasion for God's grace where he forgives us and yet that doesn't take away our responsibilities uh, our duties to each other and the way we're supposed to treat each other um, and and I don't think that that's a, a problem you can just solve um, but I think that that is what often my peers are getting at when they say I'm spiritual I believe that there's meaning in the world I think that there's something outside of just our world that's that's important, but not really religious. Okay. Uh, I don't have these outside rules that are imposed on me. Mm -hmm. I decide what I get to do. Mm -hmm. And there, I, I obviously think that there are contradictions in that, right. but that's what I think that they're getting at by using those terms. So sometimes I think we conflate these, and I just wonder if you can comment. Is there, do you think there's a difference between unchurched doubters and previously churched or churched doubters? Definitely. So one of the stories I was going to share, but kind of moved past it, uh, is, is the story of Leah Labresco Sargent. Uh, she's uh, a, a Catholic writer who grew up in New York City. And she, like, 
she compared uh, religious beliefs uh, to like UFO sightings. She was like, we, we just thought that they were ridiculous, right? Um, and so, uh, I thought that was someone's ringtone. <laughs> Love y'all. Y'all are amazing. I just thought, that's an interesting ringtone to use. <laughs> Leah Labresco Sargent. Um, I'll, I'll bring it up on the internet real quick. Um, she, so she's Catholic now, which is a really big deal. <laughs> Because you got to believe a lot of things to be Catholic, right? Uh, so she had a really big conversion, and the way that happened was actually at her university, she joined um, a, a kind of debating club, and uh, there was this there's this tradition in this debating club uh, to admit uh, when you lost, and you had to like declare it. And she it was the first time she had ever interacted with Christians, and the first time she ever admitted that they were right, and so. Uh, I think that uh, interacting with someone who's a kind of blank slate, uh, that's not the best term, but yeah. interacting with someone who doesn't have that background is, is very different. And I think one of the things that happens with unchurched or, or, or de-churched or kind of left church, there's often, a, in my experience, is a kind of pain associated with it. I think you have to be more conscientious of that with someone who's left church. Um, you've got to just be ready for a, a bad story. Uh, whereas someone who's never been a part of church, they may not have a, a, any experience, much less a bad one. So that, that would be what I'd be concerned about with someone who's left. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I would really like to respond to you. Um, I, I went to this yesterday, Faith Communities for Millennials. I don't know if anybody else went there. Did you? No. I highly recommend you listen to it. Okay. Because he really gets, he's 26. He's the um, campus minister at the University of Washington. And he really gets into how different things need to be for millennials for them to want to hear what we have to say. So that guy's 26. This is the author. Yeah, he goes a lot into, you know, how differently their lives have been than mm -hmm. our lives have been. You know, like they don't know a time when there wasn't the internet. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's been different for yes. them. And they learn differently and they listen right. differently. Right. And it, it, it would be really good for you. You want to write it? One, one podcast that uh, my wife and I have listened to a lot that, um, that has really impressed us is a podcast called This Cultural Moment. And it can be really brainy and nerdy at times. And so uh, you got to be awake uh, when you listen to it. Um, this cultural moment. And it has been very enlightening to us. And these are... Yeah, yeah. And these these two guys are both uh, pastors in... Portland. Portland and Melbourne. In Australia. Yeah, and so they're in very secular cities, uh, but have pretty large churches, and often some of the most secular or unchurched or de-churched congregants who are at their church. Uh, and I think that they do a really good job of, of understanding the kind of 
cultural water in which millennials and younger generations kind of swim in. Yeah. And really, they unpack a lot of, of like the question you were asking of why aren't people going to church? And it's, you know, there's so many other factors of the broader move of secularism and the culture and how all of these things, how the internet, how digital capitalism, all of this stuff is shaping younger people and what they believe. So it's a great resource. And they're really smart guys. Yeah. And, and one of them really has an Australian accent, so that's great. Cool. And they really love Jesus. They do. And it's, it's really good. All right, I'm going to pray for us. I think it's time to, to uh, call it. But um, thanks, everybody, for, for being here. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for all that you've done for us and continue to do for us. We pray for uh, faith for ourselves. We pray for a greater trust in you. Uh, deeper conviction um, about you, and we pray that that conviction and trust uh, results in action, action for those who are far from you, that we would uh, understand where they're coming from, uh, we would be uh, merciful to those who are wavering, and that ultimately uh, we would see uh, so many um, come back to you uh, or come to you for the first time. Uh, we pray for, for faith, but we also pray for those who doubt, and we pray for those who struggle with both. We bring all these things to you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.